True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The axe hovers over her head. In the darkness of her bedroom, it's difficult to tell who's holding it. The first blow sends blinding pain through her body. This cannot be happening. By the time the second blow of the axe falls, she knows with absolute certainty that she's just been betrayed by the one person she thought she could trust. As the darkness of the room overwhelms her vision, the last thing she sees is the killer turning their attention to her mother. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is episode 82, The Bredenhun Family Murders. This episode is sponsored by the brand new release movie, Last Seen Alive. After Will Spann's wife suddenly vanishes at a gas station, his desperate search to find her leads him down a dark path that forces him to run from authorities and take the law into his own hands. The movie stars Gerard Butler and Jamie Alexander and released in cinemas nationwide yesterday due to the public holiday, despite its official release date being the 17th of June. This week I announced the winners of our giveaway of three sets of double tickets to watch Last Seen Alive, and if you weren't one of the lucky winners, I hope you've got your tickets booked. A huge thank you to Last Seen Alive for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Sonia Barnard, Chris Marie Dupria, Liesel Linfelt, Oliver Maitman, Samantha Ellis, Lila Blair, and Joel Chiani for your support on Patreon, as well as Tino Valentino for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. In addition to the shout-out and monthly exclusive episodes that Patreons get, I also now upload an ad-free version of every week's episode to Patreon, so if you prefer not to hear the ads, head over to Patreon and sign up for a minimum monthly contribution of just $1, which at the moment is about 16 rand. It's a pretty good deal. If you like discounts, because who doesn't, head over to King Online for your health and beauty needs, print crowd for all your printing requirements, and use the code TCSA10 at checkout for 10% discount and support the show at the same time. And you can get 10% off when you order from Wallpaper Online by using the code TRUECRIME at checkout. Other forms of support that make a huge difference include following the show on social media, inviting your friends, family, postman, hairdresser, and parole officer to listen, and leaving reviews on the podcast platform you use. Today's case is a family murder. Whenever I cover a family murder on the podcast, the episode inevitably gets a load of downloads. 
and I think that speaks to the horror of this type of crime. We don't ever want to think about a threat to our lives coming from within our own homes, even less so our own families, spouses, parents and children. As a true crime audience, when you hear the term South African axe murder, I'm guessing you probably immediately think about the Van Breda family murder, in which Henry Van Breda killed his mother, father and brother and attempted to kill his sister. I covered that case across four parts in episode 52 of the podcast. Well, that's not the case I'm talking about today. This is the other Axe family murder. Different in almost every way, but also strangely similar in many ways too. My sources for this episode include the judgment for the initial trial, as well as the appeal and several media articles. So let's get into episode 82, The Bredenhan Family Murders. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Madeleine Albertina Marika Bredenhan was born to her mother, Elmarie, and her father, Hansi, in 1976. The dark-haired girl who excelled at school and was considered quiet and well-behaved as a child struggled when her parents decided to divorce when she was in primary school. She and her brother, Albert, would continue living with their mother while maintaining a relationship with their father and the Bredenhan family, as well as the extended Wambach family on her maternal grandmother's side, were close-knit. The closeness of the extended family tree would eventually be cast in a bit of a darker light, with some saying that the Bredenhans and the Wambachs had always been a very secretive group of people who insisted on keeping family matters private. This secrecy would later become a matter of criminal concern. Madeleine remained very close to her mother and grandmother right into her twenties, and by the time she was twenty-seven, the three women, Madeleine, her mother Alma, and her grandmother, 86-year-old Albertina Wambach, who everyone called Dassi, were all living together in a house in the Durandia suburb of Pretoria. Madeleine had recently broken up with a long-term boyfriend, and she was figuring out what she was going to do, and staying with her mom and grandmother while she did. Alma was living with Dassi to care for her, as her mother had become ill, and was unable to carry out most tasks herself. As a result of her mother's illness, Alma also shared a bedroom with the older woman, in case she needed anything during the night. Madeleine had been a bit down during the April of 2003, after her breakup with her boyfriend, so she decided to get herself a puppy, so she'd have something to focus her attentions on. She named the little white pup Brackenyan. Quick sidebar, don't worry, nothing happens to the dog. On the evening of the 12th of April 2003, 
Madeline settled into bed after her mother and grandmother had taken their sleeping tablets and already gone to bed a few hours before. At 4am the next morning, the Bredenhund's neighbours heard dogs in the street barking. One man looked outside and saw a car driving slowly down the road away from the direction of the Bredenhund's home. Another neighbour then heard glass smashing. Both neighbours walked out of their homes to find Madeleine Bredenhun standing on the lawn of her house. She was brushing glass from her hair on the other side of a broken window. Then she climbed back through the window and a few minutes later re-emerged with a set of car keys and a jacket. She started to run toward her car. One neighbour called out to Madeleine, asking if they'd been broken into and if they needed help. Madeleine replied that she was okay, but she thought there was someone in the house and they should call emergency services. She was headed for the police station, she said. Madeleine Bredenhun arrived at Pretoria North Police Station at 5am that morning. The police officer that first saw her, Sergeant Robinson, said that she looked pale and out of breath. He noticed blood on her shirt and asked her if she was okay. Madeleine said her house had been broken into and that she didn't know what had happened to her mother and grandmother, but their bedroom was full of blood. She begged Sergeant Robinson to get an ambulance to the premises. Robinson immediately took down the address and called an ambulance and arranged for a police unit to accompany them, but within a few minutes the responders called to say they couldn't get onto the property because Madeline had padlocked the main gate behind her when she'd left. Madeline jumped back into her car and raced back to the property to unlock the gate. She then sat in her car outside while police first cleared the house to ensure no intruders remained and then paramedics entered to attend to Alma and Dassey. Inside the main bedroom, paramedics found a scene of horror. Both Almarie and Dassey were very clearly deceased. Both women had sustained severe head wounds and the implement with which the damage appeared to have been done was on a pillow next to Dassey, an axe. On Almarie's side of the bedroom, blood was everywhere, up the walls and even on the ceiling, but Dassey's face had been covered with a pillow before she was hit, and the pillow had absorbed most of the blood from the attack on her. Between Dassey's legs was a bag containing money. Police officers went outside and advised Madeline, who was being comforted by a neighbour, that her mother and grandmother were deceased. The officer noted the blood on Madeline's T-shirt and asked her to accompany a female officer so that the shirt could be exchanged for another and that one could be taken as evidence. This would be a crucial moment in the case. After Madeline had seemed to recover from the initial shock and, and handed over her shirt to the officer, she accompanied the police back to the station while forensics units scoured the house for evidence. Madeline told the detective assigned to the case that she'd been lying in bed when she'd heard a noise in the house. She said she'd realised that someone had broken in and she'd locked her bedroom door 
broken the window, and escaped to raise the alarm. The detective would later hear from a paramedic who treated Madeleine on the scene for shock that she told him that she'd been awoken by knocking noises in the house. She'd stuck her head out of the door and called out that she was going to phone the police before going back into her room, locking the door and breaking the window to escape. When the detective questioned Madeleine's brother, he said that his sister had told him she'd locked herself in the bedroom after seeing figures moving around the house, and a fourth version was uncovered through her ex-boyfriend's sister, who she'd phoned while she was driving to the police station to say that both her mother and grandmother had been injured by two men who'd broken into their house. The detective was now wholly concerned about all of these differing versions, and considering he'd been unable to find any evidence of forced entry into the home and no indication that anyone else had been in the house, he was starting to seriously consider that Madeleine Bredenhan may have something to do with her mother and grandmother's murders. The axe that had been found in the house, according to Madeleine and several others, had not belonged to the Bredenhan family. It had to have been brought there from outside and there was something else strange about it. The axe only had the blood of Elmarie on it. There was absolutely no trace of Dussie's blood on it at all. From the blood patterns, it appeared that Elmarie had been attacked first, which would make sense, as she would be the more mobile of the two and the greater threat. If Dussie had been attacked first, her blood could have been completely concealed by Elmarie's blood, but for it to happen the other way around would be odd. The other thing was that someone had taken the time to wipe down the entire axe handle. Not a single fingerprint could be found on the handle, and then it had been neatly placed on Dussie's pillow next to her. When the detective got the results of the testing from the shirt Madeleine had been wearing that night, though, he knew he had enough to arrest the woman. The blood on her shirt belonged to her mother, and a bloodstain pattern analyst said that the drops had been direct spatter impact, meaning that she was standing in front of the source of blood within two meters when blood had exited the body. It was also not cast off, meaning it hadn't been flung off the axe when the intruder was aiming blows at Almarie. Madeleine Bredenhan had to have been standing in her mother's bedroom when the woman was being hit with the axe. With this in mind, Madeleine was arrested on two charges of murder. When she was in custody and faced with her changing stories, Madeleine relented and admitted that she had been in the room when her mother was attacked, and this was the story she now told. Madeleine told police that she'd been in bed around 4am that morning when she'd wanted to get up for a drink of water and to get her dog a bone to chew on to keep him occupied. When she'd exited her bedroom and crossed to the bathroom to drink water, she'd heard a noise and then seen two masked assailants moving around her home. She hid in the bathroom and watched as one of the figures went into her bedroom. 
She said she then ran into her mother's room to warn her and her grandmother. As she entered the room, one of the assailants had also entered and switched on the ensuite bathroom light. Madeline had managed to crouch down and hide next to her mother's door. She then watched in horror, she claimed, as the assailants approached her mother's bed with an axe and began to hack at her mother. Madeline said that she'd shouted and jumped up from her hiding place and tried to tackle the assailant. They'd wrestled for a moment until the assailant got the upper hand and tried to aim a blow of the axe at her. Madeline had dodged out of the way and the axe had instead gone into her mother's body. She said that she then crawled out of the room on all fours and she heard the attacker shout, Madeline is on her way to you presumably to the other assailant she'd seen earlier. She thought about hiding in the bathroom, but since it didn't lock, she instead ran into her bedroom and locked the door. The assailants had then tried to break down her door, and when they failed to do so, they'd shouted through the door that she better not talk about what she'd seen, or the same would happen to her. She'd been afraid, and that was why she hadn't initially shared the full story, she said. Police were still not buying it, though. If she'd been so afraid of the armed assailants, why had she gone back inside the house after escaping? The neighbour had seen her go back inside the broken window. Madeline said she'd realised when she'd gotten outside that she'd forgotten her car keys, and she could go nowhere without them so she'd had no choice but to go back in, and while she was there, she grabbed a jacket because she thought she might get cold. Doubt was written all over the police officers' faces. Madeleine's family on the Bredenhan side were completely shocked to hear of her arrest. None of them believed that she could have killed her mother and grandmother, and they would support her right through the trial and beyond. The Wambach side of the family, though, her grandmother's side, was a very different story. And this would only add to the mystery around this case by the time the trial started. After Bredenhan's arrest and the statement she gave, police realised that they would have to completely rule out the involvement of anyone else in the crime. But the closer they looked, the more difficult this task became. Firstly, there was her statement that the intruders had called her by her first name, indicating that the alleged assailants knew the family. At the time of her arrest, Madeline had said that she hadn't recognised the assailants' voices. She would change this part of her story later on. Police had to consider, though, that she would use this as part of her defence, so they launched an investigation into all of the closest family members on both the Bredenhan and Wambach sides of the family. Police had, of course, interviewed the neighbours, and one had reported seeing a vehicle driving away from the Bredenhan home around the time of the attack. He gave a description of the vehicle to police, and they compared this with the vehicles that all the family members drove. One family member, Madeleine's father, Hansi, drove a similar-looking vehicle. When asked if he would take a polygraph test, Hansi declined, but he did have an alibi for the time in question. Madeleine's ex-boyfriend was also asked to take a polygraph test, 
and he also declined. Several other members of the Breedenhun and Wambach families did take polygraph tests when asked, and passed. As for Madeleine's new claims that she'd been threatened by the assailants in her home and they tried to break down her door, when police looked at crime scene photos, they did actually note that there were what appeared to be small indents in Madeleine's bedroom door and stains which appeared to be blood. By this point, though, the scene had been handed back to the family and cleaned. Then, just days before her trial was set to begin, Madeleine's attorney approached the state prosecutor with a deal. The woman had more information about the assailants, and if she was guaranteed protection from the police and not prosecuted, she would testify against the perpetrators in court. Madeleine Bredenhun, it seemed, knew exactly who had killed her mother and grandmother. Meetings were held between the prosecution and the defence, but Madeleine was only willing to provide names if she was guaranteed protection. Otherwise, she said, she would take her chances at trial. The prosecution was not willing to take the chance that she'd end up giving them the names of someone they'd already ruled out, so no deal was reached, and the trial proceeded. Madeleine pleaded not guilty to both charges of murder, and then she dropped the bombshell. She had recognised the voices of the two men who'd been in her home that night, and who'd killed her mother and grandmother. According to her, they were her uncle, Ludwig Wambach, and his son, Dieter Wambach. When prosecutors heard the revelation, they were grateful they hadn't made a deal, because they had included both Ludwig and Dieter in their initial investigations and hadn't found much of anything suspicious. The more the trial wore on, though, and the physical evidence was presented, it became clear that there was a good amount of doubt that Madeleine had committed this crime on her own, if she had indeed been a willing participant. In cross-examination, the bloodstain analyst admitted that if Madeleine had been the attacker, there would have been far more blood on her than just the small amount of spatter present on her shirt. The prosecution also could not explain why her grandmother's blood would not be on Madeleine's shirt if she'd killed her too. But then, there didn't seem to be much evidence to point to anyone else having been on the scene either. There were no footprints outside, no foreign fingerprints on anything that couldn't be explained. But Madeleine insisted that her uncle and cousin were responsible for the murders, and she'd only kept quiet because she was afraid. When faced with jail time, though, she decided to speak up, rather than go down for a crime that she said she hadn't committed. The extent of the injuries to the victims also raised questions. Some experts did not believe that a woman of Madeleine's small stature could wield an axe with such force, especially so many times, and to two separate victims. Another confusing thing was that there simply seemed to be absolutely no motive for the crime. By all accounts, Madeleine had a good relationship with both her mother and grandmother. 
They could only think that perhaps there'd been an argument that had led to the attacks. But still, the bag of money found between the legs of Dasi Wambach was another odd point. Had the older lady slept with the money in bed with her each night? Honestly, it wouldn't be completely out of the realm of possibility for an older person to do that. But then, if there'd been external assailants in the home, why hadn't they taken the money? Thankfully for the prosecution, in South African law, they did not have to prove motive. They simply had to show that there was no scenario, based on the evidence, in which Madeleine was not responsible for the murders. And in late 2004, as the trial came to a close, the judge determined that the prosecution had successfully done this. In finding Madeleine Breedenhain guilty on both charges of murder, he told those present that while he was not entirely convinced that the woman had actually swung the axe, he felt the evidence showed that she was involved in the murders as a willing participant. Madeleine maintained her innocence as she was handed down two life sentences. Her family, though, told the press that the story was not over, and Madeleine would be appealing. They said that what would be revealed in the appeal was that the truth was even stranger than fiction, and that what had led to the murders of Alma and Dassey was a long and complicated family story, but that Madeleine would soon be free, according to them. With that mysterious statement hanging in the air, Madeleine's defence attorney immediately lodged an appeal against both the conviction and the sentence. Madeleine's uncle Ludwig had testified in the trial, and the judge had acknowledged that he hadn't found him to be the most convincing of witnesses, but that it was not within his mandate to point out other suspects to the police or prosecution. He could only work with what was presented to him. Madeleine's appeal process would take another three years to come before the court, and in the interim, the already twisted tale took another diversion. In 2006, Madeleine's cousin Dieter Wambach arrived at his father's farm after being called by one of his employees to say he couldn't find the older man. Ludwig had apparently gone walking on his property earlier that day and hadn't returned. Dieter and the employee set out to search the property and discovered Ludwig's body hanging from a tree. Although the original thought was suicide, it would soon be determined that Ludwig had in fact been robbed of his firearm before being hung from the tree. One of the farm employees told police that the man had been involved in a dispute with two men who lived nearby as they'd been on his property collecting firewood illegally the previous year. When police visited the men, they found Ludwig's firearm in their possession. They were arrested tried and found guilty of his murder. This would likely have been a major blow for Madeleine's appeal. One of the two men she'd fingered as being the real killers in her case was now dead, but all she had to do was prove that there was sufficient reasonable doubt of her being the real killer 
or being voluntarily involved in order to have the conviction set aside. In 2007, four years after the murders of Alma and Dassey, the High Court of Appeals heard her case. Three judges considered all the evidence before them. At the end of that appeal, one judge would vote that Madeleine's proven involvement in the crime could not constitute murder, and that at most she should be found guilty of being an accessory to murder. The two other judges, however, found that the initial ruling was correct, and that Madeleine was responsible for the murders of her mother and grandmother. The third judge with the opposing opinion was therefore overruled, and Madeleine's appeal was denied. Her next and final step was to appeal to the Supreme Court, which she did in 2008. There, the Supreme Court decided that there were three options. The first possibility was that someone else entirely had killed the two victims, and Madeleine had been an innocent occupant of the home at that time. The second option was that Madeleine herself had committed the murders, with no outside assistance. And the third option was that she'd been present at the murders when they were committed by others, but she had not committed the murders herself. Within the third option, the judge said that there were two further options. Madeleine had either been a voluntary or involuntary participant in the murders. The appeal judge dismissed the first option, saying that they believed her continually changing stories and actions on the night counted that theory out. As to the second theory, that Madeleine had committed the murders herself, the Supreme Court decided that this too could not be the case. In fact, none of the judges that had presided over the case to that point and looked over the evidence believed that it was possible that Madeleine had actually swung the axe herself. There was far too much evidence that pointed to the contrary. So it seemed that the decision really was whether or not she'd been a voluntary participant in a murder committed by others, or an involuntary participant. If her participation had been voluntary, the Supreme Court judge said then the correct decision had been made, and a fair sentence had been passed down. We know from many other cases that you don't have to be the wielder of the weapon to be found guilty of murder. In many instances, people have been found guilty of murder for arranging it, and not even being present at the crime itself. So for the judge, the question was, was there enough evidence to prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Madeleine had not voluntarily participated in the murders? And really, looking at the facts ourselves, it seems quite clear that that's probably not the case. The blood spatter on Madeleine's shirt seemed to indicate that she was standing when the blood hit her, not crouched away behind a door hiding. Of course, that could not be the only evidence because it wouldn't be nearly enough to convict her. But she'd also changed her story many times, even in the first moments after the crime, and then long after, too. 
She hadn't really shown that she was terribly afraid in the period directly after the crime. She'd gone back inside the house, even when she saw neighbours standing outside who she could have run to for help rather than risking re-entering. She told her neighbour that she was fine, and pretty crucially, she'd taken the time to lock the gates behind her. Meaning, she had to get out of her vehicle, exposing herself to whomever could now be fleeing from her home. On the balance of this evidence, the Supreme Court found that Madeleine had been a voluntary participant in the murders, and that her conviction and sentence were just. Her final appeal was denied. As Madeleine was ushered back to jail, though, the knowledge remained that according to five different judges, and seemingly the evidence at hand, there was at least one person out there who'd gotten away with murder. Madeleine's own attorney told the media that the only person who knew the truth was the woman herself, and until she decided to one day tell the truth, or someone else confessed, the mystery would endure. And endure it does, until today. With all of her appeals lost, Madeleine resigned herself to her sentence, and began studying toward a degree in law. In 2018, while still serving her sentence in Pretoria Women's Prison, she graduated from UNISA with a Master's in Tax Law. Madeleine will be eligible for parole in 2029, when she is 53 years old. And all the while, it seems highly probable that someone else out there has been living their lives after having swung an axe that ended the lives of two innocent women. Who was that person? Was it one or both of the people that Madeleine initially named? Or was her accomplice someone else entirely? Someone who she cared for so deeply that she was willing to spend 25 years or more in prison to protect them? And why? Despite the state not needing to prove motive, you would think that one would have at least presented itself. But unless police found something in their investigations that never made it into the public domain, then perhaps the motive lies in these dark family secrets that members of the Bredenhun family spoke about. Their words were, The truth that will be revealed is stranger than fiction. But that truth never was revealed. Instead, the book was closed, and the secrets went to the grave with Almarie and Darcy, and perhaps even with Ludwig too. Perhaps in seven years, when Madeleine eventually sees the outside of a prison cell, she'll feel secure enough to reveal all but until then, the Bredenhun family murders will remain a solved but unresolved human tragedy. Almarie Bredenhun, Dasi Wambach, rest gently.
Thank you for listening to episode 82, The Breadenhun Family Murders. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. 